guys, let's see if I know what I'm doing. Oh boy, guys, I figured out how to play an intro and, um, you know, it'll probably just stay on the screen for the time remaining because who knows if I know what I'm doing. Thank God I have teammates and people around me who are smarter than me who can figure this stuff out because I think that's why I started the podcast in the first place. And I feel very fortunate that the guest that I have today is just another one of those people that I have surrounded myself with because he's so much more intelligent than me. He is so theoretically competent when it comes to things that are whew, so out far of my range of knowledge. And I'm super excited that you guys get to meet him. Uh, I've worked with him in the past. His name's David, and I'm going to let him introduce himself just like I do with all my guests. So here he comes on in. Hi, Kaylee. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining, David. Tell people who you are and what you do and a little bit about yourself. Well, my name is David Fetterman. I am a composer and conductor based in Toronto, Canada. Um, as you said, we've worked together on, uh, I'd say it was a pretty fun, cool project. Um, I consider myself a storyteller, a facilitator, um, sometimes a small e-educator. Um, and actually, I wanted to ask you, Kaylee, uh, if you realized what today was, if you planned our interview for this day specifically, or it was just a coincidence. Um, well, you have me racking my brain right now, and you're also having me realize that I didn't introduce the podcast, which is exactly what my partner and I have been doing <laughs> since the season three began. Um, I mean, by the way, this is, we're totally not okay. And that's okay. It's a podcast about the intersection between mass media, culture, and mental health. I'm Kaylee Legrand, and I'm trying to figure out what today is. I know it's a Monday, um, not just because I feel out of sorts without Justin, my co-host here, but because it, I guess, is a Monday. What does that mean post or pre or mid-pandemic, but what is the thing that I am not thinking of, David? What's uh, April, what are we, April 12th? What is today? Today is April 12th, and it is, of sorts, our anniversary. On this date, April 12th, two years ago, was our spotting session for our collaboration, The Monster in Me. <laughs> okay, I'm totally taking credit and saying that I set that up uh, on, on purpose and that I totally knew that. You're revealing something about me that I've been great with um, anniversaries, just, you know, all around. We won't get too much into my personal life. Uh, this is why I surround myself with people who know these things and have great memories. We will talk about our memories, I'm sure. We'll talk about... This is why I make copious notes and I keep calendars and I set reminders because otherwise I would just be lost. <laughs> okay, well, let's start off with saying happy anniversary. That's so cool. Happy anniversary. That's so cool. 
I I think I feel like that's magic. Um, why don't we talk a little bit about what this project is so that people know what we're talking about? So David is a film composer and I am a filmmaker. I worked on a project. Uh, I feel like it, again, landed in my lap, this opportunity, and I was surrounded by some incredible people that came together and pulled off a project that was ultimately distributed as uh, episodic pieces that were part of the online social media campaign for a local genre film festival called uh, the Blood in the Snow Film Festival. The film itself is called The Monster and Me. It is available to watch online now on YouTube, on my YouTube channel, and I can, I'll put a link in the show notes so people can watch the full thing. Uh, I, I feel like, I don't know, do we show a little bit of it before we talk about our experience? Um, I mean, we can, I think we need to put the project in context because it's okay. not in the conventional sense. How, okay, explain why it isn't conventional. So as you said, it was meant for promotion for Blood in the Snow, and it was basically a love letter to the indie genre scene uh, here in Toronto, and it features uh, cameos from all of our favorite genre stars and people who have uh, shaped the genre scene here in Toronto. Um, and it, it was a huge honor for you to choose me out of all of the BITS alum and all of the known wonderful horror composers and genre composers here in Toronto that you chose me. Well, I'm really happy that you joined on and that you were not only a part of a really fun project, but have become a fast friend of mine. I can't thank you enough. The experience on that project was very teaching for me. And I think one of the biggest things that I took away from that project is learning um, what sorts of relationships I like to have on projects that I am especially spearheading, since that was something that I wrote, directed, edited. Uh, you'll see my face in there a lot. So I acted in it. <laughs> I did a lot of a lot of hat wearing on that project. And so I think that that was already um, a, a great way to teach yourself something is just to spread yourself super thinly. Uh, but it, it taught me about, you know, how to communicate with composers, how to communicate with producers, how to communicate with other actors and sound designers. And so I have to say that the time that I spent with you, uh, especially during our spotting sessions that you were mentioning, and, and I would love for you to actually explain what a spotting session is, but I just want to say that that was one of the most enjoyable moments on, I, I think about that often. Uh, and we have a still frame that we'll get to, <laughs> to explain what was so hilarious and what kept us laughing for probably well over hours. Um, but can you explain to those who don't have a full understanding of maybe what the composition process looks like, what is a spotting session? Sure. A spotting session is uh, where the composer and the director or producer or their respective designates sit down and they watch the project together and they pick out the spots where music should go. So there's a session where you focus on the spots and it's, more focusing on how music can help the story, um, what is happening 
narratively at any given moment that needs musical support. Um, it's not necessarily or not just that music tells the story because not every moment needs music and that's why we pick out the spots. But we talk about actually just about everything except music, if you want to think of it that way. We talk about plot, we think about story, we talk about characters, um, and it's a time for me to understand the story as well as my filmmaker does, because I consider myself a member of the storytelling team, sitting alongside this dais, alongside the director, the writer, the editor, the cinematographer, all of these storytellers joined together by our powers combined like this filmmaking Voltron in the end. Uh, and I need to understand the story almost as well, or at least as well, as the director does, because I need to be, of course, telling the same story that they are, just in my own intangible way and because it's intangible we focus a lot on what is this character thinking what is this character's motivation um, what does the movement of the camera convey to the audience here what meaning is being made for the viewing audience here and how can i help i would love to address the the idea of making meaning with sound, particularly because I've been having these conversations with some fellow filmmakers, um, trying to wrap my head around, better wrap my head around how score does contribute to a moving picture, uh, particularly because I have a project coming up and it's something that, you know, I think I, in every area, I'm trying to improve uh, as much as possible. And something that stood out to me that I would love to hear your input on is a comment that another friend made um, about using noises that exist outside of the human hearing range. I, I would love it if you would be able to speak to that or maybe explain if you've had any experience using that or if you yourself have experienced watching a project that did that and what kind of effect it had on you because some of the effects that my pal was saying uh, are possible with using those sorts of frequencies are and, and he is in the horror realm as well um, works with Blumhouse and he mentioned that some of these noises have in the past led to audience members either actually vomiting. I'm sorry for people not giving them a, a trigger warning or a heads up um, or actually feeling like they're going crazy. Have you ever experienced that or used that with your composition? Um, so I was actually going to bring up a couple of the effects that you mentioned. Um, so, oh, first no. of, so first of all, no, um, I want to say right off the bat that I try not to be assaultive when I write music. Oh, great. <laughs> I try. Um, so uh, one of the things that comes to mind is using ultra low frequency. Um, so our, our human range of hearing normally goes from about um, 20 cycles per second or 20 hertz to 20,000 cycles per second. And so that's our spectrum of hearing and everything that you are hearing right now occupies space on this frequency range. 
And it's not that sounds outside that range do not exist. We just can't consciously hear them, but we can feel them. And perhaps more viscerally, um, on the lower end of the frequency, uh, you might not be able to consciously hear it, but you will definitely feel if you are being hit with a, uh, a wave of sound that has an ultra low frequency. And so that can be physically uncomfortable and uh, that can be used in the real world as a weapon. Um, similarly with ultra high frequencies, high frequencies even within the range of human hearing can be detrimental um, if used for nefarious purposes. So um, it can be useful if you want the audience's bones to be rattled a bit. Um, I try not to be assaultive when I write music. This is, I'm, I'm glad we're having this conversation before I even get to that point with my next project, because the first thing that I thought of when I heard that was like, cool, <laughs> let's have effects on our audience members when they don't even know what's happening necessarily. Because those are, yeah, like you're saying, the frequencies that still exist in the you know stratosphere, they're still affecting us, but maybe just in a different capacity, not necessarily um, with our audition. That's th that's interesting that you're bringing up this sense of, I guess, an ethical value to the way that you incorporate the frequencies into a project that is going to be consumed. Um, and I think that fits so perfectly with the fact that we talk about mass media, the, the way that we consume it and how it affects us. And we're always coming at it from that stance of like, on a deeper level, on the psyche level, or on an emotional level, what is happening. And it was mind-blowing to learn about these things that I honestly didn't know about that could be could have been in pieces that I was consuming and affecting me without even me knowing. Um, so is that an ethical choice for you that you decide, because you use the word assault, is that an ethical position that you hold to be careful with those sorts of frequencies that you're putting out? Oh, absolutely. And I remember a project that I did a number of years ago, I told off the sound designer when uh, he was putting in a really loud uh, tinnitus-esque tone. And I was sitting there in the, in the mixing theater and I, I basically just yelled at him to turn that down. Do not assault your audience. Wow. Okay. So what if you do want to have some sort of, triggering effect what if it fits with a project um but you want to be mindful of something like that like how do you for instance it, i'm somebody who is afraid of horror films so it's kind of i don't know what ironic that i have been in so many i can be in them i've been hired to cry and die uh, and that seems to have been a bit of a reputation for me um You're but the city's best known scream queens <laughs> uh, I think that because I became known as a scream queen, I jumped so far to the other end of the spectrum and tried to do as much comedy as possible. And I'm now filling in the gambit. But uh, yeah, it's funny how those things, like once you become known to do something, you get hired to do it again. And that, that's how I guess pigeonholing or typecasting comes into it. But for me, I, I'm still, I have such a challenge watching horror films, but because they are advertised as horror films, or I can, I can set myself up knowing, all right, I need to be in a particular mind frame to go into this psychological thriller or to consume this piece of media. 
do you, how, how do you prepare an audience member like that so that they can be prepared to make that choice for themselves if they want to take it? Because as far as composition goes, like that, I don't, I don't even know how you would forewarn an audience member like that. Well, I mean, there are content warnings on just about everything there have been for a long time now. Like if you go to, say, a theme park and there's an attraction that says, uh, warning, there are strobe lights, theatrical fog, loud noises, you can, as a consumer, make the choice not to participate. Um, currently, even for regular, well, in the I want to say in the before times, back when we had these things called movie theaters, um, <laughs> There were programs uh, that were relaxed performances uh, where the volume was turned down, uh, where the house lights were still up. Uh, for those of us who are a bit more uh, sensitive in the sensory department. That's absolutely true. That's something that it's funny, the more and more uh, that I am on the opposite side of the camera and making films, these things that I didn't even know were to be coming into consideration for those sorts of labels. Of course, I've seen them. Uh, and I know the categories that have are also elusively shifting as far as what's being represented, uh, graphic nudity and whatnot. But um, the more that I learn about sound and how to be ethically conscious of what you put out as a filmmaker, um, my God, I, I don't know about anybody else who is listening to this now or afterwards, just audio version. I I am soaking up already a bunch of value from you. And I know that I did on my last project with you. Uh, oh, I just need to hit this image because I keep looking at it out the corner of my eye. Nobody knows what we're talking about yet. I'm going to add this, this dumb image. So this is what you and I looked at while we were working on the monster in me. Uh let me see if I can make this full screen. God, I'm figuring things out. This is exciting. For those who are listening audio version only after the fact, um, I feel like we should maybe describe what we're showing those who are watching visually. Uh, now, I think at this point, this is where I was saying David and I were scoring a porno. <laughs> Does not match up to what the image is. <laughs> David, if you had to describe this image, <laughs> what would you say? Uh, this was your screaming no face. No, oh, wow. That's exactly what a porno would be if I were in it. So <laughs> I think I just nailed it. You said it was two years ago. This is your screaming no face. That's my screaming no face. Uh, so if you want to describe oh. the, this image to our audio-only um, participants... I guess I'm going to have to now. I don't know. We'll post it on social medias or something. I know that this lives on my personal social media, I think somewhere on my Instagram page, but this is just a still frame from uh, from the film. I'm taking away so I can actually speak seriously right now to you. But that image, I remember sitting and laughing for an like an hour with you in the middle of our spotting session. And this is one of the reasons why it was so beautiful to work with you on that project, because it was, it was not only just a fun project. And, and that was a word that I kept hearing from uh, many team members, which just, I think that was also my ultimate goal and delighted my heart the most to hear that other people were having fun working on it. But because I was working with people that were also fun minded and that we could take an out, like what other session are you going to have where you just take an entire hour out to laugh about the dumb faces that the actor is making in the, in the film? Uh, I mean, it was 
it was a brilliant face that you were making and it fit the scene perfectly and basically just circle back to what we were discussing a moment ago all of the choices that I make when I'm scoring a film and all of the things that I discuss with my client in a spotting session is how do I support the story, right? So if the director tells me in this moment, I want you to kill the audience in so many words, um, <laughs> we're going to have a discussion about how I can do so in a, in such a way that supports the narrative. And, you know, um, if the answer is, um, physically assault the audience with sound waves. Um, well, we're going to have words about that too. So in that moment, the narrative of the film, I'm screaming. Uh, maybe we'll show a bit of a clip in a moment, but uh, I, I'm, I'm screaming and audibly, what did you choose to contribute at that moment so as to not to, to uplift the narrative in that moment and not, um, I guess, even step on the voice that is already happening with music, but shape around. What was your decision factor around there? So is this the moment where um, you know who suddenly disappears? Uh, oh, I think it is. Should we just show that first so that people can hear and see what you're about to describe? <laughs> I'm gonna... uh, you know, I'm, I, I wanna preface this by saying, um, when I score comedies, I want to be sure that everyone is in on the joke and that includes me. And so because this project entirely was about embracing and leaning into all manners of tropes, cliches, in-jokes, making fun of ourselves, and that includes me too, um, or myself as well, I should say, um, what we ended up doing for this moment, I think worked in a really ludicrous, silly, delirious kind of way. Are you going to show the, the entire scene from like from the beginning of the sequence? Yeah, so I think it's about a minute long. Uh, it should be about a minute. Let's see. Let's play this. All right. I, uh, <laughs> I think that people can go and take a look at the, the full clip if they'd like to get a little bit more contextual meaning around that. But um, go Actually, ahead and mention... For those of you who are listening, could you hear that? Because I couldn't. Oh, did you not hear any of the clip? Mm -mm. 
not a thing. Okay. Well, those who are chatting up in that chat box there, if you want to plop it in there and let us know if you did hear the audio, uh, I know that we, we tested this, um, Oh, oh, that's a shame. Somebody said that they had no sound too. Ah, well, you know what? We'll direct you to watch it afterwards. They saw what was happening. Uh, if you want to, I'll put a link in the, the chat box for now, but as David is explaining how he shaped the sound around that scene, you can go and take a look. So uh, at that moment where we have your screaming no face, uh, what we decided to do was um, just have me back off, have me do absolutely nothing. And that was going to be the punchline to the joke. So I'm, I'm doing the, uh, the standard uh, cat skills routine of starting with the, uh, the punchline and working my way backwards. Um, so uh, at the beginning of this sequence, um, our two protagonists, Kales and Tiana, are happened upon by... Um, some really weird, uh, glitchy happenings as some villainous figure materializes in this uh, magical and possibly haunted forest where they've already encountered um, friends and foes in the previous few minutes. So it's like, what's next? And uh, they're like, this is how we die. And then this villain pulls uh, off his uh, his hat and uh, reveals these uh, gorgeous, flowing, luscious locks, and they see who it really is. And in that moment, we go from this um, super serious um, horror uh, genre, sci-fi type of scoring uh, to um, something that sounds... Um, What's the most polite way to say this? Cheesy? <laughs> Probably just me. Um, so we have this uh, incredible um, mood whiplash as we uh, magically switch genres from horror to um, just completely uh, over-the-top cheesy romance as Kales and Tiana fawn over um, this... Uh, gorgeous actor uh do you want to say who it is uh i we can uh i'm just calling him sexy santa for for the film especially that's i think what i plugged him or did, you know what i don't even know if i showed it in the credits let's not mention him people can find that out and look him up i think you do have his name in the credits um but uh all right well i guess we can say it jack foley yeah and um, I remember that you had to change some of the dialogue in this scene because of uh, production calendars. Mm, yeah. I would love to talk a little bit about the um, challenges that we saw with that, especially because we had a question earlier. Um, Edward was asking, Edward Lynn 0827 uh, is asking, how would an actor describe who they are outside of the role, the essence of who they are? And I think that connects also to a lot of the talks that you and I had on this project as far as understanding who we are uh, and how the roles that we take on um, do shape our reputation, the projects and the work that we put out, whether it's a commercial that I do for toothpaste and my name is still, or my face is still attached to that likeness, or if it is something that, you know, 
we are incredibly proud of and want to share and boast about. I think you and I have had many conversations like this about the types of projects we take on and I guess even the ones we want to talk about. So where you were, um, and I'll speak a little bit to the actor side of things. I would love to answer that, Edward. Um, But I would love to hear first from David about where you were at that moment when we were scoring this project and how maybe those time shifts that you're talking about in our calendar and the other projects you had going on at the time shaped your understanding of your work and who you were as a composer. So uh, I guess we, uh, this is basically the thesis statement of, uh, of podcasting on uh, how totally not okay uh, I am or was. Um, so The Monster in Me was the first new project that I undertook after sustaining a concussion. Um, two months prior in February of 2019, I was rear-ended in a hit-and-run collision en route to conducting a rehearsal of an ensemble I was directing in Hamilton, Ontario. And um, and I was left with a nasty concussion and some additional complications popped up a couple of months later. And um, in the moment, uh, fortunately, it was what they referred to as a mild traumatic brain injury, but mild, of course, is a spectrum. Um, and uh, my uh, my programming from when I lived and worked in Los Angeles kicked in. And I, as soon as I realized that the guy who hit me got away and my car was still drivable, I went, I got to get to work. I'm going to be late. Um, so I hopped on the highway, drove an hour to Hamilton, conducted the two-hour session, um, probably did some things that I can only attribute to uh, being in shock for. Like, uh, I, w- I was doing some percussion and playing some reed instruments, and I probably should not have done that. Drove the hour and a half back home and promptly felt like garbage. So, um, and of course, uh, concussions are unpredictable. And after I was attended to by people in the head injury clinic at St. Michael's Hospital here in Toronto a few days later when I was not getting better, imagine that. Um, they said you should start feeling better in uh, in a few weeks. Um, so uh, lo and behold, um, after a couple of weeks of feeling like utter garbage, I started having, starting to have uh, some good days in there. And when I felt well enough to get back to work on things, um, I basically wanted to make up for lost time. On or around the day of the injury, I was contacted by three of my filmmaking clients about projects in different states of development. There was a feature film that I had actually scored in 2017, but uh, we were uh, waiting to hire a uh, final sound mixer so that I could proceed to uh, my process of music production, uh, recording, and delivery. Um, And I was waiting until we had uh, our mixer hired and uh, signed on for real 
because there was uh, there was a period of time where things were really uncertain with uh, other people that the director wanted to work with. Um, and so on that day, I received an email uh, from this director saying, uh, we, we hired a sound mixer, um, can you call him? And I had to email him back and say, you're not going to believe this, but this just happened. No, I'm not calling anybody. Um, please give me a few days to figure out uh, where my head is at. And I had a similar conversation with you, I believe, on uh, on that day, or uh, or something like it. Um, and uh, I had to basically figure out what it was to I don't want to say be a person again, but um, that concussion uh, was perhaps more detrimental than uh, anyone would uh, would openly admit to. I think that's a fair assessment to say learning how to even just be a person again, that foundation, you and I absolutely share the fact that we've had concussions in the past, but to understand also that, you know, the day we've spoken about some days of, you know, can I just keep all the lights off today, which in a normal work setting, you know, if you were to go to an office and ask everyone if they're okay working in the dark, that wouldn't fly, but it affects all of your senses. So as a composer, that has such an astronomical effect on the work that you do, right? And the damage profile seemed to be random, even on any given day. Like some days I'd be okay with having the lights on, other days I wouldn't. Some days I would be able to uh, sit in front of a screen uh, other days, I some days I'd be able to, uh, you know, do normal human person things like uh, like cook for myself. Um, uh, other days, uh, something really weird and mentally glitchy would happen, and I'd find myself trying to um, cut something with a spoon. Like things where uh, where objectively it doesn't make any sense. And it's like, well, um, you have to be patient with yourself and you have to ask other people to be patient with you and where this runs in uh, runs counter to conventional wisdom of our industry is that no you don't have the right to ask anyone to be patient with you when you are contracted to do a job nothing else matters you uh, your job is to deliver, no matter what it takes. And I'll be the first to admit that I've made a habit of pushing myself past the breaking point. I think about all the things that I've ignored or hid, uh, working through uh, periods of illness, um, scoring films uh, when I probably shouldn't have been working. Um, actually, six months before the concussion, um, I was uh, benched with tendonitis. Um, I was in the middle of a music rehearsal and something just kind of went pop in my wrist. And uh, my physiotherapist said that basically everything kind of went wrong at once. And it was devastating because I had just been told by a couple of musicians I really, really respect that they liked my sound and they wanted to find ways of 
uh, taking that further, and then suddenly uh, I physically can't. So I had to stay off my instruments for about four to six months. Uh, a lot of that time was spent in extreme pain. Um, and I even scored a short film while my hand was down with tendonitis because it was a project that I had already committed to. It was a filmmaker I wanted to work with. It was a project I really wanted to do. And uh, in the end, uh, we settled on a sound that uh, I describe it as like a Black Mirror episode. So very um, Cynthian ambient and very paddy. And uh, so the fact that the best that I could do with my left hand is just kind of plonk it on a keyboard and kind of with this, that kind of texture, uh, it all worked out. Um, <laughs> but after that, I, I, I checked in with myself and I said, this just isn't worth it. This, this is too painful for me. I have to rest. And so um, concurrently, um, the kind of advice that I get from my peers when I say that I'm, I'm struggling with something is why don't you do something else? So at the same time, I happened to hear about this ensemble that was looking for a, a new music director. And it's like, I can do that with mostly my right hand. It's fine. Uh, I'm a trained conductor. Uh, I can do this. And so uh, I got that gig. And then on my way to conduct that gig, I get rear-ended. <sighs> okay. So, um, but with the tendonitis removing my uh, ability to play music, I mean, that was my outlet for decompressing from doing work-like things. It seems um, fairly one-dimensional of me, but when I'm not working music, I am playing music. Um, I play music with people to relax, uh, to remind myself what it's like to make music with other people. And so that became inaccessible, my outlet my primary outlet for de-stressing became inaccessible. And then six months later, um, not being able to really do much of anything, that again became inaccessible. And so these were not just injuries on a physical level, but they were injuries on a soul level yeah. as well. And so as a composer, I'm used to and expected to work quickly. I have done some very fast turnarounds. I have been trained to musically sprint. And when it was time to start working on uh, the monster in me, it was like, are we back? Are we, did something happen? Yeah, I, you can carry on. Sometimes uh, it refreshes the video. That's okay, we can still hear you. Are we refreshed? Okay. Yeah, we're refreshed. Um, so at the time that we started working on, uh, on the monster in me, it was like, you're expecting Usain Bolt, but instead you find somebody on crutches. Um, in fact, about a week prior, a week or so, uh, prior to that, I had my recording session for the, for the feature that I had worked on. Um, so in terms of time, uh, we hired the sound mixer uh, in uh, mid to late February. The sound mixer was ex was expecting to block off all of March um, to do the sound and the sound mix of that film, which is reasonable. 
only he then had to wait for me to basically scrape enough brain power together to get my uh, end of things together. And uh, conventional industry wisdom dictates that is not supposed to happen. You're not supposed to get to that point, and you're not allowed to miss a deadline. And you're not, and it's even worse to be the cause of a project's delay. Well, um, this project in many ways is a bit of an exception because, um, well, there were there was more than a year of delay built in that wasn't my fault. So the director gave me a pass uh, on that, um, and they were exceptionally patient with me. Uh, so I, I, I prepared the audio that I needed to deliver for that feature in mid-March, except for the parts that I needed to live record. But it's about an hour's worth of score times a whole bunch of uh, instrument subgroups or stems that I would need to deliver to the mixer. And after uh, using my one good weekend uh, after the injury, like three weeks in, uh, I was rewarded for my efforts with uh, terrible vertigo. So this is my brain basically kicking myself in the head saying, you shouldn't have done that. I'm going to knock you flat on your ass. Yeah. Um, and so I learned that I did not know my limits until after I passed them, which is terribly dangerous. Um, and so after I did the uh, recording session a few weeks later, I needed a few weeks of downtime to prepare for that. Um, I was okay during the, uh, during the session. I could feel that I was pushing myself because it takes an awful lot of attention when you're in the producer's chair, when you're, uh, when you're governing a session. And the next morning I woke up and was confused when it came to uh, remembering how to make food. We'll be right back after this short break. Hi, I'm Erin Pym, the host and producer of the Bedpost podcast. My show is a sex and sexuality podcast that features a new guest every week, from sex workers to sex educators to everyday people whose experiences with sex and sexuality can be just as enlightening, shocking, and hilarious. Find the Bedpost podcast on iTunes and follow our social media starting with bedpost.ca. I'll be waiting. And we're back. I remember a similar situation. My father came down to the city after one of my worst uh, concussions and took me out to a little pizzeria that was across from my condo at the time. And so it was all gourmet pizzas, individual pizzas. And because they were gourmet, they all had their own little descriptions. And I couldn't focus long enough on the menu to read through an entire single description of a pizza. And I got infuriated with myself uh and i just remember sit like just starting to cry on this menu my father's like well let's just get pizzas to go <laughs> because those simple actions that now that your brain is not only trying to heal itself and go through an incredibly intense process um there is this other emotional value that seems to sort of add to it that 
is, is, is another layer. I feel like it was at least for me, another layer of fog to get through just to get to the other side of those simple tasks in the day, let alone to the tasks it takes to say, write a piece of music. And I know you shared with me for the project we worked on together, what would have taken you, I think you said maybe two or three days for this type of project ended up taking you how long? Yeah. So the actual amount of music that you needed for the monster in me, uh, as you said, should have taken me two to three days, but because I was, uh, in, in my then current condition. Um, it was about scraping together enough good hours on enough good days over the span of two months to get the work done. And the writing process felt like I was searching for my creativity and it was trapped on the far side of a collapsed tunnel with only my bare hands to crawl through the rubble. And so I was perhaps very unhealthily um, comparing myself to what I was expecting myself to be able to do because uh, you know I hold myself to a very high standard with everything I do. Mm -hmm. and I was trying to be as kind to myself as possible, but at the same time going, uh, this is not acceptable by any metric. Kaylee shouldn't have to wait this long for only this much music. Well, I think that that project in particular, and um, we've spoken a bit about the law of attraction, but I think that that project in particular brought you and I together at uh, a kismet moment in both of our lives, having had similar past experiences with brain injuries with concussions. And uh, I guess to circle back also to the uh, question from Edward, how would an actor describe who they are outside of the role and the essence of who they are? Um, it's interesting to think about who I was at that time when I was making this project and who I have been at moments that felt very similar to what you're saying. I I think I hold myself to very high, high standards and uh, one of the projects that actually had me first start this podcast and want to move towards more comedic pieces was one in which I completely repressed. I've spoken a little bit about it before on the podcast, so people can, I guess, dive back in to hear the whole story. But I pushed myself the same way that you did to work beyond what I guess my capacity was in that moment. And I didn't have a full understanding as to what those boundaries were and why I felt that sort of resistance or tension or why I was afraid to take on a role that uh, was very dark and separate from what I wanted to associate myself with, my reputation with, um, not necessarily acting abilities, but my own persona. And to allow myself to become that character such a convoluted and, and twisted character that uh, I ended up working unsafely on in that regards um, that had me, I guess, my brain protect myself by actually having me forget a lot of the process, which made it difficult to talk about in film festivals afterwards when people were asking what it was like to work on that project. Uh, I think that that's a, a lot of similarity that I see when, when it comes to this idea of understanding who we are as people and where we are at 
at that given time and what we have to give to our projects. Now, as an actor, we don't have WSIB forms to fill out when our brain or psychological structures, I don't know, break or uh, are pushed to limits that we haven't quite tested yet and found those boundaries. Or in my case, I just at that time didn't entirely know how to step out of the role and drop it when I went home, to drop the work when you go home. But to add this other layer of the personal affects, to have a brain injury, to have to also deal with, you know, can I can I work in, in daylight today or do I have to close myself in or like, can I even listen to sounds or is that going to hurt? When your job is to work with sounds, it's this whole other side that people don't normally see or hear about unless you're hopping on a podcast like this and then talking about the experience afterwards, um, that it is such a marvel to hear the kind of output, the kind of the kind of quality that you put out. I, I have another clip that I want to play um, some music. And I, I don't know when you wrote this, but maybe you can share about where you were at or how this project uh, that I want to play, it's a song called Flight, which is located on your SoundCloud. Maybe you want to preface a little bit about that before we do play the clip. Can you tell me about it? Well, actually, before we go on to that, I want to say that the monster in me was very important for, um, I want to say my cognitive rehab, not to diminish the film to say this was just a cognitive rehab exercise, but because it was about things that were very familiar and uh, I was allowed to play on the nose and over the top and dispense with subtlety and subtext and just lean into uh, all of the jokes that we were doing. They do say that humor is the best medicine. And um, even though it took longer than I would have liked it to, uh, getting to play in such a familiar playground with familiar faces was super important to my recovery. And also screaming no face. <laughs> Yeah, that was therapy for me too. I, like I said, I was uh, I felt very blessed to have you a part of that process. I'm for those who can't see, I'm sharing that face again. That and Tiana's in there too. I should mention Tiana Nori. Sorry, I didn't ask for permission to share your face again, but she lives on my social medias everywhere too. So <laughs> I I think that because we were at points where we were going through, and, and I think that this is any and every day of everybody's life, we are always healing from something. And uh, that's why I think it's also such a miracle when any project gets done, when any film gets done, because each individual has their own incredible story that they are, are growing through and that they bring to the symbiotic nature of putting together a film, that it's not even just, uh, you know, a testament to their capacity to be able to share their skill and their ability to also, I guess, be a part of that whole gestalt look at how all of the components fit together to be able to work on a team like that. But that we all have these sort of, <laughs> I mean, right now we're, we're living through a pandemic and that is something that collectively we are all living through. And yet we all have our own individual experiences, even just moving into this quote unquote new world. I, I don't love the word 
new, the new normal, the, because right. I, I think we're still, everybody's kind of obsessed with trying to figure out what that is, but uh, yeah, that, that is life. Every day is new. And I think having actually something that you brought up our, our last phone chat, the word resilience is such a beautiful thing to come back to. Cause it sounds like you and I were, you know, flexing those muscles, the muscle of resiliency, especially on that project. Oh goodness. Um, so uh, you've brought up a number of things that I wish I could address uh, simultaneously because I only have one mouth and half a brain. Um, but to, the phrase the new normal came up during my uh, my recovery uh, brought on by my specialist as you need to adjust to uh, these new circumstances. Um, and so um, concussion recovery can be very, very isolating. So I, I had tried to uh, expose uh, myself to social situations and see, basically do a stress test. Can I be in this kind of environment? And if so, for how long? And what is the backlash going to be? What is the brain tax I'm going to have to pay uh, later? So I spent 13 months largely in isolation and adjusting to the new normal. And in March of 2020, I was just about ready to begin living and working normally. Work was starting to come back. I was signed on to a great project. We had just finished casting for a show that I was going to be uh, arranging and music directing. And then the great shutdown happened and my brain kind of went, here we go again, because we had this event that was a sudden onset we didn't know how long it was going to last, uh, uncertain prognosis. Uh, we didn't know how severe the symptoms were going to be on any given day. Um, we, uh, we were encountering this thing called allostatic overload, which is a phrase that unfortunately a lot of people have become very familiar with, which was my every day for the previous 13 months. And I'm very sorry that people have to experience that. But that's basically where your limbic system gets overloaded, not sure how to choose the correct fight, flight, fawn, freeze response to a stimulus. And so you cycle through all of them unsuccessfully and you are left in this brain fog. Um, and myself and others, ended up grieving for a lot of the things that we wanted to do or had planned to do. Um, and it was impossible to know our limits until after it was too late. And so from a purely lizard brain perspective, when the great shutdown happened and the pandemic began in earnest here, we thought we were under attack again. And my brain and body just kind of shut down. That backup behavior activated. And I ended up in quite a funk for uh, a good couple of months. Well, they weren't a good couple of months after all. Um, and so we've spent the past year trying to navigate these new circumstances after I already spent a year learning how to 
navigate new circumstances and it was it has been exhausting yeah it hasn't been conducive to uh creativity i know a lot of people have um written things and created things and that's not the way my brain has chosen to respond to this that's a a common thing that i've been hearing i i guess both ends of the spectrum especially with people sharing on social media over these times of isolation, you know, how many scripts they've written or how many more books that they've read. And especially when it comes to reading and writing and um, even viewing for me, I thought I was going to be consuming a lot more, like getting through my to watch list on all of the platforms. Uh, but I actually ended up having another concussion last, I think, October or November. I, I, I didn't write it down and I don't care to remember when it was, but um, uh, maybe I should measure my progress. But I, I found that I couldn't look at many screens. It became challenging to even keep my eyes open to read books. And yeah, a big portion of my energy went towards just being kind to myself and allowing me to heal through that and grow through that. And I think that's why when you brought up resilience, resiliency yesterday when we were chatting on the phone, that it's that's something that I, I hold on to. And I like having those little reminders um, because it is always a spectrum. I've had good days too. I have had incredible moments of momentum and feel great and go for a run and days where I don't even know how I pull off the amount of things that I pull off. But to to recognize that not every day is going to be the same has been uh, a huge eye-opening uh, experience throughout having these days with more time, quote unquote. So, and it was nice to uh, for society at large to recognize that uh, my composerly lifestyle is what people call quarantine or self-isolation, and we all had a good laugh at that. But at the same time. Uh, I want to believe that if I had built up more of my reserves of resilience over the past year and not have been in uh, poor health for the previous year, I would have had a more deft response to uh, to the great shutdown, but it just felt like being re-traumatized and wounded all over again. My body just plain couldn't. And uh, these kinds of honest conversations up until this point, or maybe even still at this point, are anathema to the perfect curated professional image that we are, uh, we are trained to uphold and maintain because uh, a lot of people don't understand or appreciate that film scoring and in fact, many of the arts, but film scoring, uh, from speaking from what I know, is as much a physical activity and exercise and process as it is mental, emotional, creative, artistic, all of these intangible things. Uh, it's it, While a lot of the process is happening within my brain and I want to say my artistic soul, it's still also happening in this body. And that's one of the things that I feel that my grad school training did very well, where they worked us very hard and through 
multiple simultaneous projects and deadlines at us to simulate what it would be like to work in the real world. The program did a very good job of doing a small scale mock-up of what it's like in the biz for real. Um, and there were weeks where I would have consecutive 20 hour days, like uh, three, four, five days where I'd be um, up for longer than I would like to, probably longer past functional, and yet pushing through and being functional on that last ounce of energy. And I have called upon that training on projects and I try to keep that to a minimum. And so I remember the ways that I'd be able to just uh, turn it on and go, go, go. And then when we were working together a couple of years ago, being physically incapable of that and nearly hating myself for it. Yeah, and that's not something that, I mean, I've been there too, but that's not something that I I would ever wish anybody to, the things that are outside of our control, you know, we, we want to be able to control the healing of our brain. We want it to happen faster because we just want to get to the things that we love and we want to do, we want to do the things that we love. Um, and, and so it's, it's almost um, this double down of, yeah, hating yourself in that moment. And it's, which doesn't serve us. So I think that that's why coming back to the idea of resiliency, that um, being okay. I mean, actually, my, my one cool thing, and we're going to jump ahead to the one cool things right now, especially since I'm noticing the time and Justin, who is not here to send me text reminders and tell me how much we are already over our time. Um, but my one cool thing has to do with what you're talking about. And so I, I will share that now. And I'd love you to share yours afterwards, too. Uh, before we play the music, I have promised. But this this idea has been sitting with me of meeting yourself where you are at, wherever that is, because it came from this thought that I had when someone told me, I just want you to be happy. And it was so interesting to watch my mind, I, I tried to step back from this thought process that was happening. Maybe it was that fight or flight response that you were talking about. And I had this, this moment, this clouded wall in between where I'm like, okay, I'm just going to sit and actually watch what's happening with my thoughts because I know the correct response is to be delighted that somebody just wants me to be happy. But my reaction and where my mind started circling was, that they had a want, they had a desire, they had an expectation or it felt close enough to an expectation or an ask from me that made me feel like I was obligated to fulfill that desire they had of me being happy. And there are moments where that, you know what, it's just, you can't get there from here. And to force yourself, especially when someone, you know, asks you um, or, or, you know, wants to express something that is supposed to be engaging and loving, but uh, feels kind of like a platitude or feels like you are bumping up against it with resistance because there's a spectrum you got to go through, just like the rainbow. You've got to get through a few different colors to go from infrared to ultraviolet. I think the emotional system is similar in that capacity where um, I started feeling I was getting even harder on myself for not being able to meet that expectation of being happy. And I decided that it's okay. I mean, it, it's okay to not be okay. Right. That's the whole point of this podcast too, but to feel like 
I didn't need to meet that expectation and to feel just like, I know that resiliency is still something that lives within me and maybe tomorrow I'll get there. Uh, anyway, that, that thought that was sticking with me was my cool thing. And I'm, I'm holding on to that for those moments. Uh, you shared your one cool thing as well. I have it written here, but if you have it as well in front of you, I would love for you to, to share it. Um, so my one cool thing that also relates to the intersection between uh, mass media culture and mental health is a show that I'm working on. Um, it's called Back and Forth the Musical. I am the arranger, orchestrator, and music director. Uh, the book, lyrics, and music are written by Dejan Lesmond. And we were just about to begin rehearsals a year ago when everything got shut down, we were supposed to go up at Fringe in Toronto and Winnipeg. And it's about an artist uh, and uh, their agent uh, with the help of uh, their therapists working on their best work tomorrow. It deals with mental health, it deals with procrastination, it deals with uh, the artist's journey. And by the way, we have the dragon. Now, after we got shut down officially, Fringe, to their credit, shifted and created a digital version of their Fringe Festival. Toronto Fringe uh, made a virtual digital Fringe Festival last year so that we could have something. And they invited us to opt in to create short offerings, whether a reduced version of our show or something else entirely. We decided to do a pandemic-sized demo version with four songs out of 12, featuring five of our cast members. And uh, we rejigged the premise. Uh, we uh, boiled it down to like 13 and a half minutes, and it's available on YouTube, and you can find it in the show notes. Uh, we're calling this uh, short version back and forth in quarantine. Uh, last year it went up as back and forth in concert because we had to pick the name before we knew exactly what we were doing. Uh, so back and forth in quarantine is available on YouTube. We hope to mount the 50-minute fringe size version um, at a fringe festival, hopefully Fringe Toronto 2022, fingers crossed pandemic willing industry willing and, and i've got my fingers crossed and then we have plans to expand it into a full length to act musical this is something that we've been dreaming about for well over a year now uh, my my cast is just so so incredible and so wonderfully talented and they're all uh fantastic people i encourage you to check out uh, back and forth in quarantine and then come back hopefully in the future to see them all up on stage. I love that. I'm super excited for you. I cannot wait to see what happens with that too. Um, and, and to see how those festivals are also changing and unfolding our entire industry. That sounds like a really exciting project. Uh, so I'm going to play this piece of music because I want people to also hear a little bit about what you uh, what you've composed since they also didn't hear anything from that film. They're going to have to go watch the monster and me via the links that we've provided. Uh, but before I hit play on this, 
what I want to read out mainly to give myself time to think about and try to figure out because I'm super curious is your two truths and a lie for the game that we play to figure out which one is the lie. I'm going to put it in the chat for those who are here watching and listening live. Um, would you like to read them out or shall I? I prefer you to because I have too many tells. <laughs> okay. So the two truths and a lie that David has provided start off with number one, he has Gary Oldman's autograph. Number two, he helped establish a social dancing community in Spain. And number three, he has a piece of the chandelier from the Toronto production of The Phantom of the Opera. Oh boy, talk about traumatizing a child. I think that was the first um, Broadway production that my parents took me to see. And ugh, we won't get into that discussion about nightmares, but I'm putting that in the chat for people to read if they want to throw their guesses in there. And for the moment, while I try to figure it out, I think I know... I, th I think I know one that's true. Anyway, I'm going to play some music that David has written, and we will also have links to this. This one's called Flight.
That is so beautiful, David. Thank you, Kaylee. So this is the piece that I wrote for my master's thesis. Well, actually, um, do we want to address the two truths and a lie? I am dying to know if you have a piece of the chandelier from the Phantom of the Opera, just, just because I feel like um, have, if you do and a piece of that thing is like somewhat closer to me in my life, I'm probably going to have nightmares. But I also... I also want to, like I said in the chat here, I also want to know if you, I want to see Gary Oldman's autograph if you, if you do have it. I feel like number two is true. I feel like you have helped establish a social dancing community in Spain. And that just simply comes from the fact that I know that you've lived in Spain. So I want to know, please tell the answer. Uh, do we have anyone in the audience who wants to make a guess? Does anybody want to... Pop an answer in there. Which one do you think is the lie? I'll give you a few seconds. <laughs> I feel um, like, see, I don't want to say mine out loud if somebody's guessing. It looks like there, there are, uh, I don't I don't know how to fully read all these stats. It looks like 138 eyeballs. Um, so far, the guess says, someone thinks that number two is the lie. See, that's the only one that I feel like is true. And I'm trying to guess between the other two. Frank thinks number two is your lie, that you have not established a social dancing community in Spain. I'm going to go with... Uh, I'm going to go with number one just because I feel like that piece of the chandelier is... Like, I can feel it close to me right now. Feel it close to you? Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> That uh, I'm I'm having like a I mean I think I have fully healed from watching that show that the Broadway musical maybe maybe not fully psychologically but how do you have that piece? So let me tie everything together, including the uh, the topic that you started out with. So um, one of my favorite things to do as a six-year-old apparently was to put on the LP of the original London cast of the Phantom of the Opera and read along with the libretto. So uh, I, I think I was the only uh, first grader in my class who knew what a, a plot was. And so the, f the first time I heard um, a cut from the concept album, um, which has an even louder uh, pulsing synth bass uh, at the beginning of the title track. Dun, 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 dun. Uh, I was uh, even younger, and uh, because bass frequencies are A, physically large, and B, omnidirectional, it made me physically uncomfortable. So there was that visceral reaction that gave me some, I must say, really bad feelings. Uh, but I eventually got used to it and uh, grew to appreciate the story and the music. Um, and uh, it was the first musical that I ever saw. I had two violin teachers playing in the pit orchestra uh, here in Toronto in the Toronto production. Um, and I thought that was the coolest thing ever. And that spawned an even greater appreciation for um, playing musical theater pieces and uh, involvement in music theater 
as a violinist and now as an arranger, orchestrator, and music director. Uh, where the chandelier piece comes in is that because uh, the world is tiny, uh, or the universe enjoys employing the economy of means. Uh, one of my friends with whom I used to play music regularly in the before times worked in the props and wardrobe department for Phantom and other musicals. And she got to take home this bead from the Phantom chandelier, uh, one of the chandeliers anyway, to be specific. Um, and she uh, was cleaning up at her place and she said, I think you would appreciate this more than I would, but I want to give this to you. And I'm very appreciative of my friend Cecilia. Uh, so thank you. And uh, it's now a prized possession of mine. But yes, I was sitting in the second row the first time I saw it. And yeah, it was frightening to have that chandelier crash in front of your face and the pyrotechnics uh, during the uh, cemetery scene. And, um, there was a, a technical glitch with the uh, the lasso uh, near the end of the show. Uh, it missed, and uh, Raoul had to play the scene sitting out. And instead of uh, the Phantom using the uh, the candelabra to cut him down, he shot fireballs uh, after uh, Raoul and Christine had escaped. So. <laughs> As, wow, talk about improv. It, yeah, um, so I mean, that's the part of the thrill of live theater, and it's mm -hmm. a testament to the actors, and that memory has literally been seared into me. Um, so uh, let's circle back to Flight for a moment. That was my, uh, my master's thesis piece. Oh, well, hold on. Before you talk about flight, what was the answer to the two truths and the lie? Because we know that you have a piece now. We know one thing that is true, but we don't know what the lie is. Oh, and for those who have not seen uh, or don't know the story of the Phantom of the Opera, the chandelier is supposed to fall. I also did not know that when I was brought to see the show as a young child. Uh, but it was more so, it was the music itself because my family loved it and my grandfather would play it at dinner time. also because he knew I was afraid of it. Uh, so almost tauntingly, I think. Um, I, had, I, I couldn't keep my feet dangling under the dinner table when it was playing. I was so afraid I, I couldn't even eat. Like I would be crawled up on the chair. So we know that one is a truth. What about the other two? Which one is the lie? Well, I, I wanted to say that, yes, you, you mentioned that I did live in Spain. And what brought me to Spain was doing a master's degree in scoring for film, television, and video games from Berkeley College of Music at their campus in Valencia. Ah. And one of the me time activities that uh, I started doing here in Toronto and then transferred to Spain was dancing West Coast Swing. And so I found that there was someone from Madrid who would uh, go between there and Valencia. And one of the things that he wanted to do was grow a West Coast swing community in Valencia. And me being a non-novice dancer, I'd been doing it for like a year and a half at that point. Um, I showed up weekly to, uh, to help him as an experienced dancer and it was a, a great downtime activity uh, from my very intense year as a film scoring master's student. Uh, 
It was a way to express my musicality in a way that didn't involve me writing music or playing music. Uh, my body was the instrument and some people have said I dance like a conductor. <laughs> what does that mean? Um, I have a very good lead apparently. Very clear cues that I give to my follows. Oh, that's so cool. And so that means that the lie is that I have Gary Oldman's autograph. I don't have his autograph, but I have met him a couple of times. Well, then it's a matter of time before that one's true, too. Wait, so was that, that was my guess. Was that right? Um, I, think, I think I guessed that, yes. Yeah. So, I think I wanted to guess number three because of my own intrinsic fears, but... Oh, that's so cool that you have a piece, though. And that I love the stories that you've shared about Spain and how I suppose that ties into the music that you were setting up perfectly. Uh, do tell us a little bit before I um, start to wrap that up, why yeah. you chose to write that. If you can just contextualize the piece of music that we've played. So this was my master's thesis piece for the Master's in Scoring for Film, Television, and Video Games at Berkeley in Valencia. Um, and now with all the perspective, so I did that in 2014. So I was there academic year uh, 2013. It was a one-year program. Um, it's a, it, now it sounds like a tune of happier days. Um, the idea was that for our thesis project, we were all going to get to go to London, UK to record with a studio orchestra at the legendary Air Studios. It's one of the major scoring stages in the world. It's equivalent to Abbey Road. Um, the main difference is that Air Studios is a converted church. So it has those kinds of acoustics. And if you sit up in the gallery and listen to the orchestra play, it sounds like you are inside a movie and you go, oh, that's why so many people choose to record here. And so I had this, this piece in my head for, uh, for a period of time. Uh, the environment at Berkeley and Valencia was just that inspiring. And because we were allowed to do whatever we wanted, I cobbled together an anime music video uh, with excerpts from uh, the work of Hayao Miyazaki with uh, a number of flying scenes. And that tied in with a written dissertation that I was doing for the other half of my uh, master's thesis project, which was exploring the use of music in Miyazaki's Princess Mononoke, scored by Joe Saishi. And so, uh, out of context, Flight is my theme song. Oh, I love it. I also love that that just made me think of when I asked you to write basically a theme song for me, uh, that it felt like a it was very action oriented because I just want to be a superhero. That's in, that's in the monster me people can go and listen to. I adore your music, David. I really enjoy talking with you too. I feel very grateful that you're not just a colleague, that you're a friend. And I'm very grateful that you came on the show to talk about your experience and what it's sort of like behind the scenes of a conductor to see a real life <laughs> of a conductor. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, I just want to uh, tell one quick story about the actual recording of Flight. Um, I've been sure. I've been scoring films for goodness, it'll be twenty years um, in just a couple of months uh, since I did my very first one, which was a horror film about uh, a haunted house, and I keep on getting projects uh, periodically that deal with scoring haunted house films about ghosts and stuff. Um, and uh, the thing that I like the most about working with film people is that so many of us enjoy every aspect of the filmmaking process and watching those DVD extras. Remember those? Yeah. Um, making of featurettes. And my director partner at the time and I were watching the making of featurettes for Lord of the Rings. And he told me uh, when we got to the, the featurette, about Howard Shore, our, our local Toronto boy, um, scoring uh, Lord of the Rings and recording at Abbey Road. He said to me, I can see you doing that someday, conducting on one of the London stages. And then uh, lo and behold, about a dozen years later, that came true. That is really cool. And so I told the orchestra that this represents a long-held long-standing dream come true and some of the members of the orchestra have played on some of your favorite film scores and getting to work with some of the best musicians in the world was just such a thrill it was just feeling their energy rush at you and looking out at them and seeing them genuinely seem to enjoy playing this music that this was there more than anything and so was also my, I want to do this more. Yeah, surrounding yourself with masters. I mean, that brings me back to the feeling of surrounding myself with people like you when I'm working on projects. That's exactly what I want. I want to feel like I am the slowest player on the football field. Um, sometimes. I mean, I do love the touchdowns and the glory, but it's just such a privilege to work with people who are, you know, I, I can't even explain how I tried to convey the kind of music that I wanted for the monster in me. And it was so fascinating to have somebody who also understands me as just a human being and a friend to be able to take that and turn it into the most beautiful composition. And it was so varied. Uh, so to listen to you also speak about your progress in your field and the other projects that you've worked on. And it seems like you have sort of a similar mentality that you surround yourself with. That you're a sponge in that way, that you're aware of the kind of masters that you are around. And I love that. It's a cool recognition. I feel like that when I'm working with you. And I feel that way when I'm working with you. I want to surround myself with good storytellers. doesn't matter the genre. It doesn't matter the style. I just want to tell a good story. You and me both. Well, we'll do more of it sometime soon, hopefully. Uh, there is so much more that, I mean, you and I also could just spend another few hours, I'm sure we we do, on phone calls. Um, well, Justin isn't have... going to do. What's that? Justin isn't here to, to cut you off. What's he going to do? <laughs> I know. Well, I was just noticing um, Frank... Oh, God bless your soul, Frank. He put a little clock in the chat. He is, I, I responded saying he is our Justin in spirit today and how unruly I am being. <laughs> you 
Justin's going to be very happy to see that. Thank you, Frank. Um, yeah, there is much more that I would love to also share. Uh, I will do so in the notes, some stuff that you are working on and some blog posts that you have written uh, about a project called Double Edge. People are going to be able to see that. I'm going to link also a trailer for that. Uh, everything that we've spoken about as well, if there are links for them, I'll share them, especially the Monster and Me so that you can actually see it with sound. <laughs> but David, thank you so much for joining me. I like I said, hope you come back not only to meet Justin, but just because there's so much more that I think that you have to offer and share for people who are who who can learn about this field and the humans behind it. So thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been an honor and a pleasure to be here uh, on uh, We're Totally Not Okay. Because yeah. we're not okay. <laughs> That is okay. And I know there's other bits that Justin is so good at plugging at the end about like where you can send in messages or requests on Anchor. I think it's anchor.fm. Um, <laughs> but you guys can also watch and rewatch this on all the podcast uh, platforms that you listen to your podcast on. Thanks. And guys, we made it through. We did it. Oh, I miss Justin too. He'll be back soon. Bye guys. Play the ending. If you like this podcast, you can support it by subscribing to it on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also leave us a rating or review, which sincerely helps us and we absolutely love. Come hang out with us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and send us your questions, recommendations, and cool things at we're totally not okay at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to We're Totally Not Okay, but that's okay. <laughs>